Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. As misinformation spreads, local election officials step up efforts to educate voters. Later in the show, they're on a mission from God. Local nuns fight to preserve a landmark school for Black children. But first, questions surrounding election security in the U.S. have never been as numerous or consequential as they are ahead of the 2024 presidential elections. Tomorrow night, WJCT presents a public conversation to demystify and explain how voting works with Duval Election Supervisor Jerry Holland. I'm joined now by Linnell Philman, president of the League of Jacksonville League of Women Voters. Thanks for being here, Linnell. Thanks, Anne, for having me. I appreciate it. And in just a bit, we're going to be joined by WJCT News Editorial Director Jessica Palumbo to tell us about the event tomorrow. Uh, for our listeners, what questions or concerns do you have about election security? Call us at 904-549-2937 or email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook or Instagram or tag us on X at FCC on Air. Linnell, how perilous is the current moment when it comes to voting and election security? Actually, it's, it's pretty perilous. Um, we have, uh, in the state of Florida, seen a number of election laws that have been passed since the 2020 election, an election that our own governor and our secretary of state at the time, Laura Lee, actually lauded as just a superior um, election integrity um, process. Um, and since that time, we've seen a number of bills that have passed that really haven't done anything about election integrity. They've done a lot to create barriers between voters and the ballot box, vote by mail, third-party voter registration organizations. But what we've also seen is we've seen the establishment of an election integrity. I don't think that's the correct name for it. Um, we, this is the election police is what a lot of people refer to them as, even though that's not the proper name. Uh, we've seen them stood up. We've seen arrests made. We've seen some voter intimidation and voter suppression caused by them. But what we've not seen is we've not seen them address uh, the misinformation, disinformation that we're seeing. We, we see it here in our own local community, but we're seeing it across the state of Florida and definitely across the United States. And what happens is we have these folks who come to our community and they sow seeds of distrust with this disinformation and misinformation. Um, and it prevents people from turning out to the ballot box because they think that their vote isn't even going to count. Um, so why show up? Or they, they do vote and then they question the election results, which we've, we've seen that across the nation. And I do want to get to some of those local efforts that you've seen here um, to provide the, you know, to kind of sow that misinformation, as you say. But I want to ask first about, you know, the disconnect between the actual problem of voting fraud, voter fraud, and and the perceived problem um, as told through social media and through some websites. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll go back and, and again refer to the election police. Um, they were established and, and they're empowered to um, follow up on, I, I, and I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, but there's like over 200 um claims of voter fraud here in the state of Florida. I think everyone's familiar with the very public arrest of 20 um, individuals here um, who were arrested. But um, the, the reason that election police was stood up never seemed to actually bear out with uh, the level of fraud um, that there were claims of being committed. And definitely things that we see on social media. Here in a moment, I'll, I'll talk about a, a way that we can do something about uh, misinformation on social media. But people are, are really... Uh, putting information out there, and, and if I may just mention a few things, um, and this will get to the event that, that I attended, but, uh, you know, they, they allude to the fact that we have invisible ink on our ballots um, so that your vote has already been determined when you show up at your polling location. They've uh, led people to believe that all of our election equipment is hacked in one way or another, um, or that when your ballot is fed through the DS-200, now we have DS-300s here in Duval County, this is the machine that actually uh, reads your ballot and counts it, but that it's it's been hacked and that it already, um, it can read this invisible ink on your ballot. I mean, just a number of things, and people continue to spread that. Um, and yet we have 67 supervisors of elections here in the state of Florida who have done an awesome job at trying to do voter outreach, and you're going to talk about the event tomorrow night with our own supervisor of election, Jerry Holland. But uh, people have, have really got to stop um, seeing disinformation on social media and sharing it and instead have got to start reporting it so we can do something about it and, and we can defend our our, uh, our elections. And it's important to note that there have been a number of studies that have shown, you know, actual instances of voter fraud is extremely rare, uh, voter impersonation virtually non-existent. 
Um, and, you know, the allegations of alleged fraud are typically mistakes that were made um, as opposed to deliberate fraud. They, the Brennan Center for Justice did an extensive report after the 2020 election that found actual voter fraud to be 0.000. That's one ten thousandth of a percent um, as opposed to something that you would see online and, and it is indicated to be far more prevalent. Yes. And there are organizations who consistently go to the Florida Capitol who ask for our election laws to be changed, who will tell you that there are millions of dead people who are casting votes here in the state of Florida. They will tell you that there are a large number of people who are not U.S. citizens who are voting. I mean, it's just it, it, it's very unfortunate that that information gets out and, and it gets life um, and people continue to spread it. Well, we're talking about election security um, uh, and about an event that we're going to be having here tonight, uh, or tomorrow night, excuse me, at WJCT on election security. But we welcome your calls and questions. You can reach out at 904-549-2937, or you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also reach out on social media. Linnell, I want to ask you about an event that you attended recently. I referred to it earlier as a training session, which it sounded like to me, uh, training members of the community perhaps to prepare for voter fraud that, that does not exist. Um, I, I would not refer to it as a, a, a training session. Um, actually, the title that it was given um, led me to believe that it was going to restore my faith in elections. Um, I attended that event along with uh, the league's voter registration director. What was uh, it called? Um, the name actually had something in it about restore faith in elections, and I apologize. I don't have that directly in front of me, but um, there were uh, six local organizations who helped sponsor that. I, I won't give their names out. But I, I attended the event, and I have to tell you, it was somewhere between a church service and a political training event. Um, the gentleman who came and spoke was very charismatic. You know, he, he really set the tone and connected with the, the attendees saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm just an average Joe. I was a professor at a college, and then big government took my job for me during the, the pandemic because he wouldn't adhere to certain um, safety protocols. He's also a, a former lawyer. Um, but he was like, you know, big government came and took my job, took my ability to provide for my family and my children. Um, and then he goes into his election spill and he has a documentary that he's created. And I don't know about you, but when I hear documentary, I, I think Ken Burns, I think Henry Louis Gates Jr. I think I'm about to be educated by a well-researched person. Um, but it wasn't that at all. It was little snippets of interviews with people that you really couldn't catch the names or their titles um, and he, he, again, he walked through a process of from the moment you walk into a polling site, your vote has already been decided um, before you even walk in. But um, I, I just want to say, you know, there were over 100, 100 people in that room, the majority of them, you know, my age or, or older. Um, and I think they're just like me. I think they're good, hardworking Americans who want to make sure that we have free and fair elections. They want to make sure that every vote counts. But what happened in there um, there was a big celebration about uh, people who violated our capital and our laws on January 6th. There was a lot of prayer. Um, there was some crying, like altar calls. It was, it was, it was very odd. But I, I really do think that that whole thing was designed to really get in the hearts and minds of people who love this country and who also want to make sure we have free and fair elections. And then he just peppered the whole event with, uh, you know, a, a documentary, as he calls it, but really just a lot of misinformation that was designed to inspire them to go out and really uh, ask for different types of laws here in the state of Florida to include getting rid of paper ballots, getting rid of early voting, getting rid of vote by mail. I mean, just really have Election Day only voting in person. Um, so it was, it was just it was very disheartening um, to see an event sold for for what it was advertised as, and it wasn't that at all. And it sounded like there was some element where he was instructing people almost on how to either, you know, intimidate or present a, a physical presence at he a polling did. station. Um, he liked to use the word truth teller. I'm, I'm not sure if that's associated with a certain social media platform, um, but truth teller, I'm used to that. Um, in civil rights organizations, we have truth tellers who stand up and, and will tell the truth about, especially our African-American and black history in this country. But um, he, he really did. He, he gave a brief lesson at the end. Um, he had someone pretend to come up and be a speaker at a public meeting. And then he had other folks come up and get on the stage with him and pretend to be um, either city council members, commissioners, um, legislators. Um, and as the person at the podium was giving their three minutes of, of public uh, comments, as they're allowed to do, um, it was just utter, I call it shenanigans. Um, what the person was saying was just unbelievable, wasn't true. 
But um, when the person was done speaking, he, he said, hey, your time is up. Thank you for your comments. Again, this is role playing. But the gentleman uh, continued to speak. He said, hey, you're violating decorum. You need to step away from the podium. And then he motioned for two pretend deputies to come from the back of the room and escort him out. Um, and then he looked at the crowd and he asked, why is why is everyone still seated? Why are you still seated? Everybody up on your feet, up on your feet. And then to crowd around the truth teller, so to speak. Um, and they did. And once they were crowded around the truth teller, he said, now look, where are the deputies? Now the deputies are behind 50 people. And he's like, look, they can't get to the speaker. And now he can continue to tell the truth. And he really was saying, this is what we've all got to do. We've got to claim space in, in these public venues. And we've got to make sure that our truth gets told. Um, so it's very interesting. That part, I guess, was a training session, and, and it was disturbing. So it uh, just made me feel uncomfortable for some of our elected officials um, and for other people who attend our public meetings. And were there people that you recognized at this meeting, um, people that were either elected or in some position of authority? Um, so I will say there was an elected person there, and I, I, as the league, had reached out to him, but I think he had already heard about it and was going to be there anyway, and that's our own supervisor of elections, Jerry Holland, um, and one of his assistants. Um, Robert Phillips was also there. They were just there, I think, to bear witness and to see what kind of information is being put out in the community um, to the residents and to the voters of Duval County. We have a question from Becca on X. She says, why did the election officials purchase partisan colored polo shirts for all election workers? That's not something I'm familiar with. Is that something you're familiar um, with? I will tell you, I'm very proud that they did that. I guess election workers, we've asked for that for quite some time. And I will tell you, um, I am a precinct manager out in Precinct 6. And we have red, white, and blue, and I do believe those are still the standard patriotic colors for our nation and, and not considered partisan. So I, I'm not sure where the information may have got out that they're only uh, two colors, but they are red, white, and blue, and we love having them. So for people who don't know, what is the work of the League of Women Voters? So the League of Women Voters, we're a nonpartisan politi political organization, which means that we neither endorse nor oppose political parties or candidates. But we do take position on issues, and that's after in-depth study and action by our members. Um, so, you know, we were born, we're about to be 104 years old, the organization is. We were born out of putting women in the Constitution with the 19th Amendment. Um, we did that. We wanted to make sure that women could cast an informed vote and not actually just duplicate the vote of their husbands at the time. Um, and nowadays, we, we really have grown and we understand that what we would have considered women's issues in 1920 are really the issues of all people. So we want to make sure that everyone is educated, engaged. If you're eligible to register to vote, we want you registered. And then we want you to actually cast that informed vote. And we actually have an online nonpartisan voter guide, vote411.org, which actually provides a nonpartisan uh, presentation of candidates and issues for voters. But this is not an exclusive gender-based organization. It is oh, community-wide. No. We have some cool pins, finally, that say uh, League of Women Voters, where men are in. And actually, since 1972, men have been members of the League of Women Voters. And on any given day, roughly 20 to 25 percent of our members are men. I want to bring in Jessica Palumbo now, um, editorial director here at WJCT News, to talk about an event tomorrow night. Jessica, we know that this is an urgent issue. Um, what is tomorrow's forum about and what does it hope to accomplish? Yes. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We are having an event ha called How Voting Works, and we're bringing in Duval County's election supervisor, Jerry Holland. And it's an event for us, the people, to be able to ask him questions about anything that we might have heard about the voting process and also get a demonstration of some of the equipment that you'll be using at the precinct. So we will have three pieces of equipment there um, ready to demonstrate. It's going to be an intimate setting where you'll be able to see it up close and on a big screen. Um, the EVID check-in uh, system is one of the, the three pieces of equipment that we'll see. That's where you go and check in at the poll. There's also an express vote machine where you actually make selections and then the tabulator. So there's three pieces of equipment that go into this process and we'll see how each of them work. And I'll be asking him some questions um, that come from the audience and just asking him about the security. How do we know that our vote is secure? How do we know that these pieces of equipment aren't connected to the Internet so somebody can go in and change the, the vote at the last minute, as some people are alleging? So we're going to be um, seeing these things for ourselves, and we'll also be making a video of this event. So if you're not able to join us there in person, you'll be able to watch this later. Is there any opportunity for people who might have questions to submit them in advance or to reach out during the program? 
Absolutely in advance, I would urge you to email me. I'm at jessica at jackstoday.org. That's J-A-X-today.org. This is an event we are putting on through Jacksonville Today. I am the editor of Jacksonville Today. Uh, please sign up for our newsletter. You can get it in your inbox Monday through Friday and find out about events like this next time. Um, this is an in-person only event. Most of our events we do live stream. This one is not going to be live streamed. So we, there are definitely uh, tickets available still. There are seats available still if you'd like to join us. It is at 6 tomorrow evening here at WJCT Studios. And it'll just be an hour-long um, Q&A and presentation. So 6 to 7, mm-hmm. 100 Festival Park Avenue here at WJCT Studios. Linnell, what is it that you hope comes out of this event? I hope actually people who, um, we, we call them election deniers very casually, but people uh, who also have concerns about our election integrity, the process, the equipment, um, I would hope that they would actually come out and be in the room with a subject matter expert, um, Jerry Holland, and look at the equipment, touch the equipment, ask those questions, and then become like a positive virus. Go out and spread it in your community to those people who don't work in and around elections um, who may be concerned about the election integrity here in Duval County and in the state of Florida. And you will be there? The League of Women Voters will be represented? Yes, I will be there. And I, I do want to get this in about election uh, disinformation. So there's a website. It's called reportdisinfo.org. And I'm asking folks that as you see information that is misleading on social media, don't just report it to the platform. Please report it. You can include the links. You can include photos on this website. But it allows them to actually look at the information on the platform and not just a single post. Um, and please don't share things that you question. Please don't do that. We say caring is sharing, except for when it comes to dis and misinformation. Please don't share that. So when it comes to reporting to that website, do you suggest that people report there in lieu of reporting to the platform? Because it could be removed, I would guess, if you report to the platform and it's found to be false or misleading. Or should people take a screenshot of it before so, they report So the it? reportdisinformation.org will actually address the platform if it's on X or if it's on uh, Facebook or Instagram, as opposed to just that one post. They'll actually address the, the material itself to the platform. Um, and, and then again, if you see something that looks um, dangerous where people are making threats towards our election officials or election poll workers, that you definitely want to report to Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. Can you give us that uh, reporting site just one more time, Linnell? Sure. It's reportdisinfo.org. So it's R-E-P-O-R-T-D-I-S-I-N-F-O.org. All right. Linnell Philman, president of the Jacksonville League of Women Voters and WJCT News Editorial Director Jessica Palumbo, thanks so much for being here and telling us about tomorrow's event. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. All right. Up next, an effort to restore a historic black schoolhouse that is second to none. Welcome back. Restoring the historic St. Benedict the Moor schoolhouse in St. Augustine has been the goal of two nuns at a local convent. They joke, as in the movie The Blues Brothers, that they are on a mission from God. I'm joined now by Jessica Clark, St. Augustine Bureau reporter and anchor at First Coast News, as well as all-around local history buff. Welcome, Jessica. (laughs) Good morning. We also welcome from the Sisters of St. Joseph, Finance Director Frank Castillo, and Sister Kathleen Carr. Welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you you very much. Good morning. Finally, Thomas T.J. Jackson, a former student at St. Benedict the Moore School who attended until it was integrated in the mid-60s. Welcome, T.J. Good morning, morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're glad to have you. Uh, Sister Kathleen Carr, you and your compatriot leading the school restoration, Sister Stephanie Flynn, 
she was not able to be here today, but the two of you have really taken the lead on this project. Why did you decide to undertake it? Well, for a very long time, they were trying to restore St. Benedict the Moore School. And then when the sisters recently, well, about two years ago, um, felt called to start a new mission, the big question was, where was this mission going to happen? It was a mission for uh, young single mothers and their children. And um, it just so happened that uh, St. Benedict the Moore um, came to us through the diocese, through the parish, and um, it needed a lot of love. It had been closed since 1964, and um, we really didn't know the condition of it until the doors were open and after we were committed to doing it. And um, two years later, right now, we're very excited about where it is now and all that will happen for the good of the people that we'll, that we will be serving. And describe what you saw when you opened the doors and looked inside for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because Jessica Clark's sitting next to me. And I think it was, oh my gosh, uh, we were standing at the door looking down about six feet because there was no foundation in this old brick building. And there were trees growing in it. The roof had been removed and there was, it was just a big mess, but um, it was daunting. But we knew if God had invited us to do this, that it, we could do something about it. I think the words, what have we gotten ourselves into, yes. came out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Jessica, you've covered this story for a long time now. It's really been a great evolution to watch on television because you've done almost every step and every angle of this story. But how did you learn about it? And oh, well, how did I learn about it? Well, the building had been sitting the there been sitting. for year, well, decades, right? And mm-hmm. I had interviewed Thomas um, about um, about how are they going to restore this building years before I ever met Sister Kathleen and Frank. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, you know, there was this desire to take this crum- literally crumbling building and do something with it. And when I, when I, I don't even remember how I heard about it. I think it, it might have been our mission advancement director contacted you That's at the right. time. Because yeah. We knew about you. And, and, <clears throat> and said, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing something with the building. The building is striking. If, if you're in Lincolnville, you know this building because it is tall. It was white at one point because of it just falling apart. It's now been painted. Um, but, uh, and it was being propped up with these giant beams, three, it looks like it's three stories tall. I think it's just really more like two. two. Yeah. Yeah. But really tall. Yes. Yes. And right across from St. Paul AME. Uh, So these long, it had these long, long metal beams holding holding up the walls. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, when the sisters contacted me and told me, that's right, Frank, Mm -hmm. about what they were trying to do with it. Well, then that was the next story for the books, right? And TJ, that was a school that you actually attended. Tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were going there. <clears throat> yeah, well, I attended this school from um, uh, kindergarten through seventh grade. And the seventh grade, it was 1964 when um, the Civil Rights Act was signed and the bishop decided that it was... Um, it's going to integrate right away. Now, in the public school system, they, I think they gradually integrated through until 1970. So in 1964, the school was closed as a school, and um, the Catholics that went to the school uh, attended the uh, Cathedral Parish School, and the Protestants went to Excelsior School and the uh, Webster Elementary School. But going there at that time, you say you say it was a two-story, but actually it was three stories. Oh, it was three stories. Yeah, the top floor was pretty much occupied by pigeons <laughs> <laughs> and storage and that kind of thing. But uh, but it was an area up on that third floor that it was uh, it had, could be occupied by certain items, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, the um, the school was a three-room, pretty much. Uh, First room was the uh, kindergarten, and the next room was the first, second, third, and fourth grade. Then the third room was the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So when you came in one door, you went around and came out the other door as a graduate in the, from the eighth grade. And from there, uh, at that time, if you wanted to continue your Catholic education for blacks, uh, you 
went to St. Francis de Sales in Powhatan, Virginia. Um, wow. Or the males went to St. Emma Military Academy in uh, Powhatan, Virginia. Mm. So both of my sisters graduated ahead of me. They went to Virginia to continue the Catholic education at high school. Frank Castillo, the sisters that ran this school at the time um, for a while were actually breaking the law. The, they were teaching mm. black students. That was outlawed. Explain a little bit about that history and what led to their um, being arrested. Yeah, in 1913, the legislature passed unanimously a law that forbade uh, white teachers teaching black students. And from 1913 until 1916, the congregation continued to do that. And on Easter Sunday of 1916, three of our sisters were arrested for teaching uh, the black students. What's fascinating about the whole thing is that from 1898, when that school was established until 1964, it was a Catholic school. And yet from beginning to end, the vast majority of people who went to that school were non-Catholic. Huh. Mm-hmm. It was newly freed slaves who chose to send their students to that, to that school because the uh, congregation had a phenomenal reputation dating all the way back to France for teaching. And uh, the amount of impact that they had, along with other groups in that community, uh, created a scenario that within their first 25 years of teaching in that area, 50% of the African-American population could read and write. Wow. So the impact's enormous, but uh, for sure, uh, the sisters continued to be dedicated to that in spite of what the law said. Uh, there was some anti-Catholic sentiment. There was obviously some anti-black sentiment that was in the area at the time. And yet the congregation continued to be very faithful in terms of making sure that they were teaching the people that were there and they were committed to them. Uh, at one point, the principal at the time that was put under house arrest uh, did wow. n- would not put bail. She said, I've done nothing wrong. In a very short period of time after that, the, uh, the appellate court in the state of Florida said that private schools did not have to abide by that law. And that created a domino effect throughout the country, uh, one that from 1916 until 1964, private schools were able to continue to teach uh, black students in whatever way that they thought because of their religious affiliation. Sister Kathleen Carr, um, th- that is a, a brave Thing for those nuns to do to keep teaching under arrest and threat of arrest. Um, would you say that that's unusual for the sisters in your orders, or is that as something that is um, kind of a defining characteristic? I, th- I think if you really knew us, it's not. It's not really unusual. That was rather courageous of them. And um, from my being in the religious community and looking at our history, we've had some very strong, courageous women leaders in the Catholic Church, and so. That doesn't really surprise me. Jessica, you've gotten to know these nuns pretty well uh, over the course of your uh, years of reporting now. Tell us a little bit about them and what what strikes you. They're spunky. (laughs) Yes, they are. They are full of life and unstoppable. I heard this when I did the first couple of stories with them because I I guess there were more naysayers than I knew. But what I kept hearing the, the sisters say is, you know, that we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to make this happen. This is, this is going to happen. And being kind of new, I grew, I grew up with a Protestant preacher as my father. So I didn't know a whole lot about Catholic sisters, but they are determined. And when they said they are going to do this, uh, there, as you mentioned to me last week, there were some naysayers who said, we've tried to build this building or restore this building before, but and it, and it just hasn't happened. But you have made it happen. How far away, Frank, are you from hitting your goal? Because they had to fundraise a lot and mm-hmm. to make this happen. Thomas, you know they did because oh, yeah. you you had trouble getting the money, right? Well, when we first started out, it, there was only so much you can raise well, with um, bake sales and barbecues <laughs> and those kind of things. But we raised enough just to be able to match uh, grants to, to help preserve the building itself. But uh, what the sisters did, you know, kind of went way out beyond what we could do in a short period of time. And it, um, it, I'm, you know, I'm real surprised and uh, happy that it got to the point where it is now because it, uh, it looks a lot better. And a lot of people in the community 
that, that live around that area, they um, kept asking, well, you know, the Catholic Church has so much money. Why don't they just go ahead and do something? Mm -hmm. But that's not, it was not that easy because um, there's so many um, uh, needs uh, in the community, in the Catholic community that, you know, it has to be prioritized. And that was one that was not really high on the list unless there was an in use for the building and, uh, you know, after it was restored. So that's what kind of, we, you know, was married, you know, married with the, the need and, the, and what was going to be done with the building after it's restored is what kind of catapulted it into a project that's doable. Yeah, and I think a couple of things that I would add to that, we're very thankful for the committee that Thomas was a part of because they helped uh, protect that building so that we could then come now and, and help restore that. You know, we've had not only naysayers, but people saying you could build a new building much cheaper than what it costs. <laughs> what is it right? costing? The, the, the rehab is costing approximately $3.5 million, right? And the question that we often get is, why are you committing that much money, that much time? And quite frankly, how have we been able to get foundations and thousands of individual donors to give to it? That building is the critical part of the history of St. Augustine. It's the critical part of Lincolnville, and it is the critical part of the African-American experience in Lincolnville. It was the lifeblood and the, li and the place where families chose to live, and, and it was very much the epicenter of that time. And for us, we're, it's an important building to salvage because we need history to remain there. Uh, it disappearing would not have been good for St. Augustine. It would not have been good for the history of African Americans, nor for the congregation or the diocese. And I'll add one additional thing. Many people say, well, the Catholic Church has a lot of money, the diocese has a lot of money. We really, other than the land, which the diocese has uh, given to us at very reasonable terms, uh, we have not gotten any money from anywhere else. It's mm -hmm. really been individual donors, <clears throat> it has been a family foundation, and the community rallying around a very important building that's uh, critical for us to say. Mm -hmm. And and the having a mission at the end, driving this, as TJ says, is something that helped animate the fundraising and make sure that the project was on track. So, Sister Kathleen Carr, what is the mission that is attached to this building now? The mission that's attached right now is for young single mothers and their children. They're going to have an opportunity to uh, further their education or get education and um, both uh, professionally they can um, get jobs and they'll be mentored with um, different businesses in town and um, we're also going to be helping their children we are going to have a, a, a center where they can bring their children and hopefully um, many women will benefit from the from the program and and may I add it's working it's already yes. happening. There are five or six uh, right. single mothers. Even before the building? Even before the building yeah. has been fully uh, restored and open. Um, the sisters are working with uh, this handful of young women who have children. Um, their job skills were limited, which limited them in the ability to really get out of either a cycle of poverty or just not being able to give their children what they really wanted. And so one got enough money after learning a job skill and getting really good at it to get a car. Mm. That's big. Transportation you, is huge. You've interviewed several of these women. Yeah. yeah. And another one was able to get a home, a house for her three children. And and that's because they're learning job skills like nursing and accounting. And what are the others that... Uh, yeah, culinary. Culinary, right, right, right. And so to see this transformation, <laughs> and it's so neat, isn't it, Sister Kathleen? It's the transformation of a building that you told me and also of lives. Right, because right now everything's happening on the campus or the right where the Sisters of St. Joseph are. So they live and breathe um, all of the sisters around them. They're, <laughs> they join us for meals. And so they have a lot of opportunity to kind of rub shoulders with us and have conversations. And we know their children and are very invested in the lives of their little ones. And um, so it'll be different once they go over to uh, St. Benedict's because they won't be right right among us all the time. But I think the sisters will be going over there and being among them. And some of the things that you offer, too, is um, effective parenting skills, right. you know, development skills, helping mm -hmm. them, you know, free up time to get further their education. 
That is correct. Yeah. And Jessica, I want to talk to you a little bit about the transformation of the building because, you know, you've taken this great photography, drone shots of, you know, what it looked like before and then the whole evolution of it. Um, how are they incorporating the new structure? Oh, into the yeah, old- this is so <laughs> neat. So basically, when you drive by or you go and walk up to the building, you're going to see the brick structure that was uh, there in 1898 when it was built. And the contractor said has had to build basically a new building within that um, I, that that shell of the brick exterior walls. <clears throat> Because, well, for all kinds of technical reasons that we could go into. But for basically, they're building a new building within the old building. And then they're having to tie it together with these really long screws. I'm talking about like, you know, a foot and a half, uh, two feet long. And so they're called Healy ties. You want to talk about that? No, the the Healy tie to me is very symbolic. I think it's it's really tying the, the old with the new. And I think that's um, kind of just bringing whole new life to the building. And I love the fact that the word Healy is in it because I think um, I think there's been a lot that has that needs to be healed from the time the school closed to um, to what this building is going to become. And I think it's going to become bring healing to even the neighborhood of of Lincolnville. Well, what kind of healing do you, do you envision, and what kind of healing do you think is necessary? I think um, Thomas Jackson could maybe uh, talk a little bit about it too, but I, I think a lot of it is, you know, why why did this black school have to close? And I'm someone who worked with the with the Haitian community in Miami for a number of years, and they were all black students. We have over 400 of them. So I kind of ponder in my mind, why did this school close? Which I don't really know, except it was that time of history. Yeah. And um, And so I think... You know, having that happen, Thomas was one who kind of bemoans the fact that he didn't get a um, eighth grade uh, graduation mm-hmm. um, d- diploma, and his sister <clears throat> did because you went to CPS, correct? Well, I did. You I got over, mine from. You went over to CPS. Excuse me, I got mine yeah. from CPS. Yeah. But, so maybe Thomas yeah. can talk a little bit about what healing might need to happen. Well, you know, um, it's. I guess I'm kind of at a loss for words because when you, at that time, there was a different um, environment. There was a different uh, social uh, dynamics going on. And um, there was in 64, you know, there was uh, um, demonstrations going on and there was um, a request or a demand or an impetus to integrate. And that was the quote unquote, um, thing to do and the thing we wanted to, to have done. So that closing St. Benedict, moving the students over to Cathedral Parish was kind of something that was at that time, you know, just wanted that we wanted. Uh, not looking at the total picture of, well, if you get what you want, you might lose what you have mm. kind of thing. Right. So, um, and then as time went on, that sentiment, kind of creeped in that, well, why did you have to close St. Benedict? Because, um, you know, we could have been just as good leaving it open. Mm-hmm. But looking back over the years that I was at St. At Benedict, and I'd, I'll never forget the fact that when, um, we'd have, um, like in May, we have May Day and those kind of things. And we would go to the Mission of Normandy Dios, and we would actually walk from St. Benedict down to San Marco Avenue. And that's, for people who don't know, today it's marked by that large cross. Yeah, the large cross, yes. And that's where we would have, um, we'd walk from St. Benedict down to the Mission, and there would be buses that would come from Jacksonville, Gainesville, all over the diocese to the, the Mission. And the students from CPS, Cathedral Parish, and would walk down too. And we would all in, mingle with each other and, and just uh, just all come together. And then when the day was over, we'd get into our respective lines and walk back to our mm-hmm. respective segregated schools. And it was like that was kind of a, a cathartic moment. I mean, it was that might be not be the appropriate word, but it was kind of a way of, of giving, letting us know that hey, we're all the same. 
because and, you were both black and white children all playing together. Right. Didn't yeah. matter. Yeah. And right. then and then at the end of the day, though, we'll, you get back into your lines. And go back to our segregation. Separate. And, and Cathedral Parish and St. Agnes were two um, predominantly white schools. Well, actually all white. And St. Benedict was all black. But then while we were on the grounds of the mission, we were all the same. <laughs> that, that story, though, has happened, uh, obviously, at a lot of schools around the country when integration happened, which is that the black students were often sent to the white schools, and then the community schools that the black students had been attending either you know, fell to disrepair or perhaps just weren't as vi vi vibrant and vital as they once were. Right, correct. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think about what, <clears throat> how, how that happened, it was a, an objective or a goal of the civil rights movement was to integrate rather than just uh, say, okay, we want to be uh, on the same par, mm -hmm. so to speak. Because a lot of the um, students got a good education, even though they didn't have the same resources, got a good, great education. And of course, since we are in the middle of Black History Month, um, a lot of the history of the of black history that we did get, we got uh, in in spite of the resources that were available. Mm. Jessica, that in some ways is a larger story of Lincolnville. I mean, we've yeah. seen it change so much. Um, a historic black <clears throat> neighborhood located just south of St. Augustine, um, once a very vibrant center of black life, mm -hmm. and um, now. It's very different. It's very different. I think the um, black population of Lincolnville is a minority. It I'm used to be with, yeah. all, I, yeah, almost only about all. seven percent. Yeah. And I think that's part of the healing that needs to take place because yeah. the effect of integration essentially moved out a lot of the African-American families that are there. And as I shared at the very beginning, if non-Catholic families were sending them to St. Benedict, then those families were not put in CPS because CPS only took the Catholic families. And so the non-Catholic families that had been the primary part of St. Benedict were, were found needing to find an alternative. Mm. And so that's part of the healing that I think mm. the congregation yeah. is really yeah. wanting to bring. And, and it, thing, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one thing you have to realize, too, that <clears throat> kindergarten was not a, um, a public school, was not offered right. by the public schools, but it was offered by the Catholic schools at St. Benedict. So we have a large uh kindergarten class of maybe 25 or 30 kids but once you move to the first grade it went down to maybe six or eight or ten mm -hmm. the rest of them went on to public school but because kindergarten was not offered by the public schools mm -hmm. at that time. just very briefly um what what is needed still to complete this project just yes yeah, so we're looking at a shortfall right now two hundred fifty thousand on the 3.5 which is an amazing progress but we are looking to close that shortfall and uh, hopefully uh, in the summer we'll have a dedication and a celebration when all that comes together. Well, congratulations, Jessica <laughs> Clark, Frank Castillo, Sister Kathleen Carr, and Thomas T.J. Jackson. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Yeah. We could talk all day, couldn't yeah. we? No <laughs> kidding. It's a story that must be told. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Up next, a steamy book series on ice. Bosch's 2024 Gala takes you from galaxy to garden, a celebration of fantastical elements found in our backyard. This event supports the Mosh Genesis Initiative to create a new state-of-the-art museum. More info at mosh.org. Seacoast Bank, dedicated to helping Floridians prosper since 1926. Seacoast offers the personal and business banking solutions customers need with the personalized service they deserve. More at seacoastbank.com forward slash bank on better. Member FDIC. WJCT Public Media and the Jacksonville Music Experience presents Black Opry Review live on the WJCT soundstage on Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. 
A celebration of the diversity and versatility of country music, the Nashville-based collective has been praised by Rolling Stone, NPR, and more. Tickets and more information at jacksmusic.org events. On the next Fresh Air, actress Molly Ringwald. She stars in the new FX series Feud, Capote vs. the Swans, as Joanne Carson, ex-wife of talk show host Johnny Carson, and one of Capote's most loyal friends. Ringwald rose to fame representing Gen X angst in 80s films like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. The Republican Party's frontrunner seems to have locked up the nomination weeks before Super Tuesday, but former President Trump still needs to contend with being citizen Trump in the eyes of the law. Is the Supreme Court poised to deliver both good news and bad news for his campaign? And how would such a grand bargain shape the race between now and November? That's all next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. In celebration of Library Lovers Day, the Jacksonville Public Library is hosting a Lit Chat Tuesday with internationally best-selling author and the spicy, the author behind the spicy Jacksonville Rays series. Joining us now is romance and fantasy author Emily Rath. Hey, Emily. Hi, how you doing? Good. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So your Jacksonville Rays series of books has an interesting story behind it. Tell what uh, tell us what inspired you to write it. Yeah, well, I joke um, that I basically was inspired by a TikTok, right? So the world of TikTok and how that has taken off so much with uh, romance in general, book talk, hockey romance is a really big genre over there on TikTok. I saw one NHL TikTok about a uh, equipment manager, right? So equipment managers are the ones that like maybe change out skate blades or, you know, they are assisting the team while they're on the ice. I saw one TikTok and like within 15 minutes, it was like a coconut on the head moment of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be like this and it's going to have these characters. And, you know, within about 45 minutes, I had plotted it all out. And then, you know, about a month and a half later, it was like, I think I'm going to publish this. And then by March, you know, that was around January. By March, I published it and it took off and it exploded into this international bestseller. And yeah, so it's this Jacksonville based hockey romance. Um, and I've been having a ton of fun with it. That's extraordinary. And yeah. so I love that it came from TikTok because not a lot of people necessarily associate that with literary inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, but you've carried it really through. This is the first of, of many books that you've written on this on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, I had a little novella that I did that I started it with that was called That One Night, just kind of like a teaser because I had done some more like historical fiction and, um, you know, some other genre work. And so I wanted to just see if my readers are going to be like, what if I did this? And so I, around Christmas last year, I did a little novella called That One Night that just kind of introduced two of the characters. And then they were like, yes, we love this. We want more. And that's where I was like, OK, because I'm going to do this whole series. And so now it's really become this uh, the Jacksonville Rays universe. And so there'll be five main books. I, I have a number of different like novellas that I have planned out and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's been amazing. And I was recently picked up uh, by traditional publishing, both in the United Kingdom and the whole of the Commonwealth and now in the United States, North America. So we just did the re-release of the first book in the series, Pucking Around. Um, and I'm very excited to say it is now a USA Today bestseller. So that Congratulations. happened. Yeah, That's that happened last week. Wonderful. So, Great yeah. news. So um, the... Did you come to this as a hockey fan? Have you had to learn about hockey? I, you know, so I, I, w I wouldn't say that I was like diehard hockey fan season ticket holder, but it was something I've always, I have always loved hockey and I've always loved hockey romances. I've been a romance reader, you know, since high school, I would go and like pick up romance novels at the dollar store or something, you know? And uh, so I've always loved romance novels. I've loved the hockey romance genre. It's a ton of fun. I didn't it's, know that that was into itself a genre. I mean, yeah, I it's the single largest subgenre within sports romance hockey romance, hockey romance yeah Knock it off. and so it's it's a ton of fun it's a huge universe of readers and they're so fun so that's like with on tiktok they're so fun it's such a good community it's it's a it's a friendly community to be in with these hockey romance readers so i knew there was a market there with tiktok and with marketing it's like if i wrote this as part of you know as part of that community and been like you know here we go here's a new one i was like they're they're gonna they're gonna like it and they're gonna have fun with it 
Um, so it was, it's just been a lot of fun all around. So that's been kind of part of the marketing strategy too, is to incorporate TikTok and the community there of people that are, you know, receptive. Yeah. Well, I mean, as an independent, not, not just an independent author, as traditional published author as well. It's like you want, you want to know that you can sell the book and you want to know that people can find it, that people will resonate with it. And, you know, there've been a number of books now that have really had a lot of success, um, by doing TikTok marketing. Um, and as it, the, the, the market has to be there, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to have these rabid hockey romance readers that are constantly sharing, sharing titles, sharing new releases, right? That they're, it's an uplifting community where it's like, we all love this thing. We all love this genre. So we're going to share our new favorite titles. Um, so if you can insert yourself and, and, and be able to capitalize on that, you know, because otherwise, as an independent author, it's just me. It's just me out here trying to sell these books. So you have to be able to tap into these markets, whether it's fantasy romance or hockey romance, um, and get the readers interested so they'll read it. So your romance titles have been praised for being welcoming, body positive, queer inclusive. Yeah. How, how can people register for the event tomorrow? What can they expect? Yeah. So the event tomorrow, it's the Lit Chat. We're doing it over at the Southeast Jacksonville Library. And so you can go online um, to the Jacksonville Library website. I believe it's jacksonvillelibrary.org. I think you have it yep, in your show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to forget it. Um, but yeah, so it's 7 p.m. tomorrow. We're going to have a fun. It's Tuesday the 13th. It's going to be fun. It's going to be Valentine's Day. Um, I will be in conversation with Jessica Hatch, which is going to be a ton of fun. And then we will have Femfire Books um, on site uh, selling books and you can get them signed. And readers of mine know they can always bring in backlist books as well. And I'll be happy to sign those, too. Well, uh, author Emily Rath, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it and we uh, look forward to your continued success. Yeah, thanks so much. And that's our program. You can email feedback and suggestions for future conversations to First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. If you missed anything, you can find all of our programs archived at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast platform. You can also catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight. The executive producer of First Coast Connect is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer, and our show is directed by Brady Corum. Join the conversation Tuesday when we discuss a proposed law that would make it more difficult to file ethics complaints against Florida's elected officials. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.